So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. So, Vicky, it's Priya. we have a bit of a grim show because it's all about genocide. Yeah, it's a sad show, but an important one. And the reason why it's so important is because, I mean, last Thursday, Canada finally said that ISIS was, in fact, committing genocide and they agreed to it. Whereas two days earlier on Tuesday, there was a conservative motion to call ISIS genocidal and the government voted it down. So on Tuesday... Prime Minister Trudeau said that we do not feel that politicians should be weighing in on this, first and foremost. And he had mentioned that he wanted this UN Security Council to weigh in. And Stéphane Zian, our foreign affairs minister, echoed those sentiments. So the UN Security Council said that they were genocidal? Is that what happened? No, actually, which is weird in and of itself. But uh, the UN Human Rights Council did write a report to that effect. So that's what I guess has changed the government's mind. So ultimately, at the end of last week, the government said that this is a genocide now. That's good. That means we're going to do something. I mean, yes, hopefully that means we're going to do something. I mean, Canada has signed on to a treaty that makes them dedicated to preventing and and punishing genocide. And this could potentially change our our role, I guess, on the world stage in terms of what we're doing with Syria and and the region more and more generally. But I don't know, you, you had mentioned before that you're a little bit cynical about this whole thing. Yeah, I just think anytime any government says this is a genocide or this is a crime against humanity, they get very excited about their symbolic victories. And then they don't do anything. I was very young and I still very much remember a lot of my African family's reaction to what happened in Rwanda where it was just, you know, call it a genocide, but then walk away. It ends up being a lot of word parsing. So people are saying genocidal actions versus acts of genocide versus is this a genocide? And what does it mean when we're, you know, combining a number of war crimes? Ultimately, it means that we've already waited two years to get involved on what was from day one a genocide. They only went into this Yazidi community to attempt to erase a community, and yet we're still arguing over whether different pieces of it constitute a genocide. To me, it seems like watching the conservatives get upset at the liberals for not calling it a genocide was just like, you were in government when it was happening. You were in charge. You could have called it a genocide then, and you didn't. Multiple reports at that time also said, this looks like it's amounting to a genocide, and they still said nothing. So, I'm cynical because I think there's going to be a lot of political back and forth that's ultimately not going to mean anything for the people who are living through it. 
And I'd actually really love to hear from somebody from the Yazidi community because I feel like we're not hearing from them enough, definitely. And it just seems that we're hearing a lot of political speak and a lot of politician rhetoric and, and not human people that this is affecting. Yeah. So I spoke to somebody from the Yazidi community here. And then we're also going to speak to Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who's a liberal MP. Yeah, so he was one of the four liberals who voted for the conservative motion recognizing uh, ISIL, ISIS, Daesh, whatever you want to call them, as genocidal. Yeah, and then we're also going to speak to Stephanie Carvin, who's an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And she's going to give us some information about the convention and all the politics of it. And the legality of it, more importantly. Yeah. Yes. I'm Vicky Mochama. I'm Supriya Devetti. And this is Canada Land. This week's episode is brought to you by ShipStation. When you're selling on sites like eBay, Amazon, Etsy, Shopify, or even on your own website, you know, it's always exciting to see those orders come in, but then you end up inevitably dreading the next part, which is shipping them out. You've got to get those orders out quickly and keep your customers happy, and that's why you need ShipStation, the number one choice of online sellers. ShipStation automatically imports your orders into one easy-to-use interface. Then, they'll help you choose the right carrier to get the lowest rate for every package. With ShipStation, easily create shipping labels for all the top carriers, including Canada Post, UPS, and FedEx, right from your computer. You can even manage, ship, and track your orders on the go from your smartphone or tablet with the ShipStation mobile app. Right now, try ShipStation free for 30 days. Listeners of Canada Land Commons get a special bonus only if you use the offer code CANADALAND. So don't wait. Go to ShipStation.ca. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Canada Land. That's ShipStation.ca. Enter Canada Land. Supriya, I really wanted to make sure that we got the voice of someone from the Yazidi community. Which makes sense because, I mean, I feel like their voice has largely been muted or at least not been as prevalent during this whole debate, you know, for the last like two years. Exactly. So I reached out to Dalal Abdi. She is a human rights campaigner and an activist with Yazda, which is a nonprofit organization that supports the Yazidi people in the Middle East and abroad. She lives in Canada now, but she's a Yazidi who was born in Iraq. And so I spoke to her from London. Can you tell us what it means to you that the Canadian government has now declared ISIS's actions to be a genocide against the Yazidi people? This means everything. This is the day that I have been waiting for for so long. We've seen the social media. We've seen what ISIS have done to the Yazidi families, to the Yazidi girls. They have shown us that uh, they wanted to get rid of every single Yazidi and or to convert them into Muslim. A lot of the girls were taken and sold in a sex slave. Uh, um, a lot of girls coming back pregnant, as young as a nine-year-old. You can't even imagine. And this day is definitely going to be in my history books. This day means a lot to me. We have been fighting for this day for a very, very, very long time. And I'm surprised that it took this long for Canada to recognize this as a genocide. But I'm so thankful and I'm, I'm so happy that this day has finally come now, you've been in Canada yourself since 2000. Can you tell us about your journey to how you got here? Yeah, I was born in Iraq and uh, my uh, parents had to make split second decisions to uh, walk over to Syria to run for their life during the Gulf Wars that was happening. I stayed in uh, the refugee camps in uh, Syria for about um, nine years until I was sponsored by the Canadian government to come to Canada. My mom and my dad used to tell me that we're going to heaven. Do you still have family in Syria, Iraq and Turkey? 
Yes, um, I got family in Turkey. Um, I do have five siblings that are still in um, Iraq. One of my brothers, I remember uh, the phone call he made to me, August 3rd, 2014. I'll never forget that conversation. He was a grown man and he called me on the phone and then he was in tears and he said that they're killing little kids, little kids are dying. He went through the uh, Mount Sinjar to get to safety to Kurdistan and it was just, it's, it was heartbreaking. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I just couldn't think. I was just so hopeless. So for your family who's still there, what are their lives like right now? What are they waiting for and hoping for? My brothers and my sisters are in difficult situations. They're just stuck at in Iraq, living in tents and living day by day and uh, helpless. I mean, I'm I'm happy that they're in a safe zone, as we call it for now, but uh, definitely struggling. And it's a, it's a hard time. And my brother went back to see if his house was still up. His house is down. He has nothing left. There's no home to go back to. Now that the government has called it a genocide against the Yazidi people, what do you want them to do? To get this process going, to get it started. I mean, we should have haven't gotten this process started yesterday. Every time a genocide has happened, we say never again will we do this and that. But it always happens. And Yazidis is a group, it's less than a million all over the world. And um, our population have been decreasing. They have been going through 74 genocides. And I want Canada to open their doors for these refugees. I want Canada to bring these girls from Iraq, and Turkey and Syria, the ones that have escaped from ISIS, bring them and their families here. Let's give them a better chance. These are human beings. I don't want to talk to a person like Justin Trudeau. I just want him to get out of that suit and just imagine if this was his little girl, what would he do for that little girl? Would he stand there and do nothing? I'm so happy that this government has come out and made it a genocide. And I, I want this government to move as fast as they can to bring bring these girls here. At the end of the day, these girls are our girls and we need to take care of them. And once I was that girl and I was given the chance to come to Canada and now I'm a voice for those girls, they will do amazing things. They will come here, they will recover. They are waiting, they're struggling. Since August 3rd, 2014, many of them haven't had a good night's sleep. We have to, we have to go with the rest of the world and fight ISIS. We need to destroy these monsters. These monsters are taking precious humans. So when the motion over whether or not we should call uh, this a genocide, it was supported by the conservatives all around. It was largely rejected by the liberals, all but four MPs voted against it. And I wanted, we wanted to speak to one of the MPs who voted against it, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, he largely tends to go against the grain, at least so far in terms of his voting, which is, you know, a little bit refreshing, I would say. Yeah, he's been on the show before. He's called the government's stance on marijuana legislation hypercritical and outrageous. And so we really wanted to get him on to understand why he felt so strongly and what it was like to vote against the party. We called him up on his cell phone. Nathaniel speaking. Hi, it's Vicky. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, no problem. Nathaniel, can you tell us why you voted for the motion to call ISIS's actions a genocide? Sure. So I took the time to review a number of UN reports and the evidence 
I thought was inescapable that a genocide had occurred and was continuing to occur. Now, you voted against the majority of your liberal colleagues and more in line with the conservatives. Is that putting you in a political doghouse? No, no, not at all. I advised my party of my position. I had a good conversation with Minister Dion on Sunday before the vote took place. And where one arrives at a decision, having reviewed evidence and you disagree in a respectful manner, they had no issue with it whatsoever. Can you tell us about that conversation with Minister Dion? What was, how did he try to convince you otherwise? Uh, well, he referred me to his speech in the House. He was on record as putting his reasons forward as to why he didn't think the conservative motion was appropriate. I understood his position. I, you know, I certainly agree with Minister Dion that the matter should be referred to an international tribunal. There should be an appropriate legal finding on a standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, and legal consequences should follow from that. But having practiced civil litigation, you know, we can tackle the same issues at law in a civil trial that we tackle in a criminal trial, different standards of proof, different procedures. And I view the House of Commons as a different venue from an international tribunal. We're not subject to the same standard of proof. And we should, in my view, exercise our own individual judgment. This was a free vote. And having reviewed all of the evidence that the UN had compiled, in my view, this was clearly a genocide. Now, the prime minister said earlier that the decision shouldn't be left to politicians. What do you think about that? I think he's right. It shouldn't uh, only be left to politicians. So absolutely, the matter should be referred to the International Criminal Court or another international tribunal and a formal legal determination should be made. But just as the UK Parliament, the Australian Parliament, the US Congress have all unanimously expressed their condemnation of ISIS atrocities and called this out for being a genocide, I think Canada could well have done the same. And I, I do think it's important to name these actions as a genocide because it calls upon the international community to confront the actions of ISIS even more so than we already are. To that point about us already confronting ISIS, Canada is already involved in the fight and we've taken in quite a number of Syrian refugees. Why is it furthermore important to participate in it as a genocide conversation? The international community, when confronted with a genocide, it's our moral responsibility to do everything that we can to prevent that from continuing to occur. The conservative motion said that ISIS aims the attacks at groups such as Christians, Yazidis, and Shia Muslims, as well as other religious and ethnic minorities in Syria and Iraq. The government now has recognized an ongoing genocide against the Yazidis. What about those other groups? Yeah, well, there are examples in the reports where uh, ISIS has targeted and destroyed churches, for example, of other religious minorities, not just Yazidis. And there is a clear targeting of ethnic and religious minorities within the geography that ISIS controls. One distinction that's been made is that the Yazidis, they are not even willing to tax, for example, whereas other minorities, they might tax, and if they don't receive that tax, then they will uh, murder, enslave, torture. But I, I don't think that distinction means that what's happening is not a genocide. I mean, the specific targeting of ethnic and religious groups for the purposes of suppressing them, destroying them, expelling them ultimately is their goal so that they completely control that territory under one united, narrow uh, viewpoint of the world is absolutely, uh, it qualifies as a genocide in my view. So what exactly does it mean now that we're calling it a genocide? I, I've said before, I don't think it means anything. Fair enough. But I think for the actual logistics, you know, I'm not a genocide expert. Are you a genocide expert? Or not at International all. affairs. Yeah. So 
Uh, I think it's fair to say that we need somebody to be brought in to break this down for us. I think so. All right. So let's speak to Stephanie Carvin. She's an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Let's get her in on this. So, Stephanie, we all know that ISIS are committing a bunch of atrocities. They're enslaving women and young girls as sex slaves. They're beheading people. Why is it so important whether we call their actions genocide? And what exactly does that mean? The reason is that in the 1948 Genocide Convention, which came after the Second World War, it says that the crime requires specific intent to destroy whole or in parts. And then lists different groups that you can target. Interestingly, sexuality, not one of them, but this was 1948. And then it lists like the kinds of actions that would constitute that crime. The other reason why it becomes a big deal, though, is that, you know, Article 1 of the convention makes it very clear that states have the duty to prevent and punish genocide once it is, in fact, recognized. And Canada is a signatory to the 1948 convention, correct? It is, yes. What would our legal obligations be then? That's a great question because the convention actually doesn't uh, spell it out. And I've seen different interpretations as to what that might mean. I had a chance to talk to one of my uh, law colleagues actually at the University of Ottawa about it. And he, he doesn't think that there is actually a legal obligation. Whereas Louise Arbour, for example, who's actually sitting on uh, the defense review panel, she's actually argued that no, once a genocide is in fact there, that there is a legal obligation that has now been recognized by the International Court of Justice and various trials that Canada would, in fact, have to actually act. But that's the thing. What is acting? No one really seems to know what that is. There's no requirement to use force. So, you know, it might as well just be, you know, bringing it to the attention of the United Nations, trying to advocate. It could also be uh, increased humanitarian aid, bringing in refugees. So the idea that this would automatically require the use of force is as wrong as the idea that it wouldn't actually have some kind of legal obligation. But the fact is that, you know, this is a... In a treaty, it came out at the end of the Second World War, and it didn't specify what those specific obligations actually are. Why do you think this particular conversation is happening now? It's actually been going on for some time. The Conservative Party of Canada has been bringing this up in the House of Commons uh, throughout this year. They were talking about it as far back as March. What happened was they brought forward a motion. And so the government was in a position where it actually had to vote on the question whether or not it recognized a genocide was taking place. Did they make any reference in the motion to the 1948 convention or were they just calling genocide genocide without any specifying what they expected to come out of it? That's exactly what a lot of the criticism was. The fact that the uh, motion put forward says, yes, we recognize genocide taking place. And that was pretty much it. It was it was a very vague motion that was put forward that didn't actually specify uh, whether or not they were, in fact, suggesting that this was genocide as spelled out in the 1948 convention. And they also didn't say what the follow-up action should be, whether it is they should go forward with prosecution, whether or not they felt that this required force. All these kinds of questions were kind of unnamed. So, it's, you know, I mean, the, the, the liberals and the conservatives went back and forth, but actually the uh, NDP foreign affairs critic, uh, Helen Lavadier, uh, she came forward and said, well, you know, you're actually... This is an incredibly vague motion. You're not actually saying what you mean and whether or not there is actually a legal obligation. So I'm not really sure who wrote the actual motion and why they weren't clear. And I think that was actually a big problem for the motion put forward. My concern with the motion as it was put forward was that it was this kind of meaningless expression of solidarity rather than some kind of uh, action plan that kind of, I think, is 
envisioned in the 1948 convention, or at least their drafters, that you would actually, once recognizing genocide, you would actually then do something about it. So I think that was a, a big problem with the motion. I think that's where the, a lot of the politics came place. And then it actually became something, I think, of a, of a bit of a trap for the liberals. Certainly they saw it that way. And, and that's why I think they had trouble voting for it, because they felt that if they did, in fact, recognize it as genocide, that there would be then these legal obligations. The prime minister said that it isn't really the job of politicians to be weighing in on this. Is it parliament's job to decide on whether this is genocide? There's nothing in the convention that says that it isn't. And I thought this was actually a very strange remark for the liberal government to say. And they actually put forward a series of of arguments that were highly contestable, if not wrong. In the first instance, they we're saying that it wasn't up to national parliaments, that it actually requires some kind of vote of the Security Council to actually make a determination based on evidence conducted by an independent review. I mean, there's nothing to suggest that this is the case. Stephen Dion bizarrely also claimed that, you know, this was our, our precedent within Canada, that this is how we'd proceeded before. And, and I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm not sure we have any precedent whatsoever for how we, in fact, recognize a genocide taking place. Certainly, this wasn't the conversation we were having in 1999 when it came to the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, which had fairly similar themes and overtones. So I'm not really not sure where he was getting this from. But it's interesting that when they put a motion forward on Friday, when they finally came around and said, yes, we are in fact going to recognize this as genocide, they're still using very careful language that kind of supports their original position. So uh, I think the motion they put forward says they recognize the evidence that genocidal actions are taking place. They refer it to the ICC, which would of course take care of the punishment aspect. And then they also talk about continuing efforts in order to combat ISIS going forward. So it actually is is fairly close to their original position that, you know, they're still wanting the UN Security Council to go forward, but they now agree that genocide is taking place because there's some evidence. Stefan Zion was saying the UN Security Council would need to vote. And as we all know, the permanent members would have veto rights. So that means this is up to China and then Russia would have the ability to essentially block whatever we were going to do to begin with? Yes. They would have that ability. I'm, I'm not sure they would in the case of ISIS, because I think everyone's uh, against ISIS. But yeah, absolutely. Bringing it to the Security Council, then uh, it, it's, there's, the, there's the five veto, and then you would have to convince a majority of the other states on the council as well. We always hear about R2P or the responsibility to protect um, in terms of international law. Canada obviously has a responsibility to protect, but what difference would it make whether the G word was used or not? Because, I mean, irrespective of whether we call it genocide, clearly these, you know, crimes against humanity and and atrocities are are being committed in that area. So does this further engage us or is it kind of all semantics? R2P status, the responsibility to protect status in international law, I would say is contested. And certainly you see a lot of states use it in order to uh, justify their certain actions. And, And it can be a bit dangerous because, for example, Russia, Russia, of course, when it invaded Georgia in the 2000s, basically said, oh, this is responsibility to protect. We're protecting the Russian citizens in Georgia. So it's it's actually can be somewhat of a, a bit of a prickly principle. But the liberals clearly felt that by invoking the specific terms, that they were invoking the convention, and then that they then had a legal obligation to respond. Where, where I think that started looking a little funny is, you know, there basically seemed to be concerned about acting against a group they're already technically at war with and have taken great pains to suggest that despite the fact that they don't have the F-18s in theater anymore, the fact that they are actually still bringing the fight to ISIS, whether through special forces, through training, etc., etc. I'm really curious about your speciality in war and technology. ISIS has been very prevalent on social media. 
would part of prosecuting them for genocide be taking in the social media that they've been using? I think it certainly could, because again, the, the difficulty with prosecuting genocide is intent. And that's, again, where we've seen that prosecution come down. Because, I mean, the difference between the Nazis, for example, in the 1940s, the 1930s, they actually kept really good records of what they did. And the problem with a lot of the groups we have seen, whether in Rwanda or in Bosnia, it's like they've kind of been able to work on innuendo and suggestion. They didn't make notes of a lot of the things that they wanted to write down. So it's been very hard to actually prove that genocide's taken place. I mean, I think the major difference between some of these groups and prior groups is that they have explicitly put out the idea that they want to actively kill these groups going forward. So Justin Trudeau, Stéphane Zion, and Minister Sajjan call you up to say, Stephanie, we need your help. Are they committing genocide? And what action do you think we should be taking? What do you say? I would probably defer them to the reports. I I don't have a problem with a political party suggesting that this is genocide. I don't have a problem with politicians declaring it as genocide. Ultimately, whether or not genocide took place will be decided in a court. I, I suppose my problem with the debate that took place in the House of Commons was just, it wasn't being specific. It didn't outline any of the steps until very late in the day as to what kind of steps the government should be taking. And I I suppose one of the problems is that in Canada, when it comes to these foreign policy debates, we tend to look at them through a domestic lens. So if you look at the way the conservatives were kind of talking about this, they may have been genuinely motivated. I don't want to take that away from them. Uh, the fact that these various groups are being targeted and these groups are suffering, I, I think it's important. But, you know, the second that the liberal said, no, they can't support this motion, Jason Kenney's making Facebook videos and accusing the liberals of being soft on terrorism and all these other things. The NDP, when they were speaking in the House, they interpreted it through, you know, we need to get Canada to start signed the arms trade treaty and some of their other pet projects. And the liberals, they have consistently had difficulty putting forward a coherent narrative on their various elements of foreign policy. So the House rose on Friday, um, which means they're off for the summer. So does this mean now that we're just not going to do anything for the summer and this whole whether or not it's genocide, whether or not we need to do anything extra is just sort of put on hold or, or pause until the fall? Canada is over there. It, it's engaged in certain operations against the Islamic State. So, so certainly on the military front, that's going to continue as we see the Islamic State being pushed and pushed more into a corner. The political rhetoric might die a bit for the summer. We might see it more or less in, in different Facebook postings and fundraising operations of the, the Conservative Party. And it's going to be interesting to see what the Conservatives make of this when they come back to the House in the fall. And I think a lot of that's going to depend on what in fact is happening in Iraq and Syria and whether or not we've actually seen some kind of progress made against the Islamic State going forward. That's our show for this week. Make sure to follow us on Twitter or Facebook by typing in Canada Land Commons into that search bar. Our producer is Kevin Sexton and our music is by Nathan Burley. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. You can email me, Vicky, at CanadaLandShow.com, and you can always get a hold of Supriya by emailing me. I know, I'm terrible, just making people email you for me. Shortcuts comes out on Thursday. Commons is off next week, but starting July 5th, we're back every other Tuesday for the rest of the summer. If you like the show, support us. Go to Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Thank you.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.